0: The Interplanetary Podcast is
1: alive! The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your host in Guilford England, Matthew Russell. I'm joined on the podcast again by Chris Lintott, uh, um, who's the Professor of Astrophysics at the University of Oxford. And actually, before we start, congratulations on becoming the Gresham Professor of Astronomy as well.
0: Thank you. Yeah, Gresham's a a spectacular place, giving free lectures for more than 300 years now to anyone who cares to drop by online or in person. It's been great fun to be part of it so far um and to, to to write some new talks actually and talk about some new things several of which over, overlap with the, the book that i know we'll be discussing
1: i've noticed that sir christopher wren is amongst the the people that have <laughs> and john yes. barrow as well yeah most yeah, the recent, people
0: i mean the recent predecessors are the scary ones frank close martin reese john barrow i actually went to john barrow's gresham lectures while when i was a student and um yeah it's been a platform for all sorts of people but it used to be a venue for jobbing astronomers so Christopher Wren, when he finished his degree here in Oxford, um, got this job in London and it had accommodation with it. So he and the other professors used to live in in Gresham College. Um, And it was really, it was supposed to be a university. It was was the money left by Thomas Gresham's will. So it set up an institution for the people. And I think he meant a university, but they decided that was difficult and just kept the lectures a bit. Um, So yeah, Ren was there before he came back here and abandoned astronomy. Really, we always claim him, but he came back to Oxford as a geometer, as a professor of geometry, and then he got distracted by you know all that architecture stuff, (laughs) building, except halls. He's he's pretty famous for architecture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly, but we'll claim it. You know, who says astronomy is useful? We produced one of the country's great architects, and who knows, one of my students here may go on to build cathedrals um, in their in their own time. We we can't tell
1: who who knows yeah and and talking of students was was becky smethurst one of your students she was my first we've...
0: phd student which i always tell people was like having a phd student on easy mode uh because becky's <laughs> always had her own ideas and was pretty self-directed but of course these days is youtube's dr becky so yeah um, yeah we've long since passed the point where we try and Impress prospective students by telling them I'm on the sky at night, and we just point them at Becky these days.
1: Yeah, well, yeah, she. I mean, she. I, we, I had her on the podcast, and she did. She did wonders for my numbers. I have to say, she's... the thing that Becky has that I
0: think um, is un, unusual in science communication is that she obviously speaks with a very deep expertise for the subject, but she's not afraid to go into detail. Even though she's, you know, on YouTube, and yeah, you can pick up a news, any newspaper article that will tell you that the kids are, yeah people who get their information online are superficial or not interested in the detail but it's also a place where you can sink into detail and you know if lots of my colleagues if they want to know exactly what's going on when they see the headline that says you know black Mm. holes take over universe or astronomers find bigs whatever becky's videos are a good place to turn because she'll give you the the real stuff and i i it's something we've always tried to do on sky at night as well and and it's great to see Becky picking that up and running with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have to say when I if I read something that seems like it's improbable, like they they found a black hole that that's there before the start of the universe and it's like, right, well, I'm going to watch the next Becky Dr. Becky video and I bet she'll talk about it and she does and and she explains it. There's some there's some there's some great there's some great science uh, uh, communicators out there at the moment, and she's definitely. Yeah, that's true. It's, but
0: it's funny how the headlines come around. There's, you know, we've had a star older than the universe several times <laughs> in the last few years. And it's not. Yeah, there's the could this be aliens that comes around a every lot. day. It's, yeah, yeah. It's usually not. Uh, you know, threatening black black pull black holes. You know, black holes are some of the most fascinating <laughs> objects in the universe. But it's always like threatening black hole. You know, may kill Earth. And you're like, no, it's fine. They're friendly beasts we're all good um uh, yeah these things come around <laughs> alien spacecraft in solar system it's not um yeah so so these stories do come around but but um yeah there's plenty of science to be talked about around each of them as well which is something I always like trying to do
1: well so so your new book the uh, our accidental universe am I right in saying it's really about how a lot of the big discoveries in astronomy are about serendipity is is that right
0: that that's right yeah there's a couple of sort of Um, things that induced me to write it one is this sense i think that um we know what we're doing as astronomers which is a complete myth Uh, but people i think do have this impression yeah and it's not helped by often the way that we're presented you know as, as clever people doing clever things in ways that you couldn't possibly understand um you know, the, the idea that we all sit around waiting for somebody to have an idea and they go, my God, that's it. I understand dark matter now. To <laughs> the telescopes. Whereas actually the joy of astronomy is about the things we don't understand. The arguments in the corridor when there's a confusing result, the speculative idea, the sometimes the object that comes out of nowhere passing through the solar system or, you know, landing on a perfectly harmless bit of Gloucestershire or or whatever, and that can can change everything. So, um, it's really this getting away from this sense of astronomy as a sort of cold and disciplined science and trying to bring people into the fun of, of doing it for a living and the fun of being on the, the cutting edge of, of this. And I, you know, one of the, I was trying to shape the book for a long while. I had a chat with Meg Urie, who's one of the smartest people I know. She's the person who worked out how black holes and galaxies relate to each other and um, professor at Yale. And yeah, we were talking about this and a misty over a gin and tonic, but she reckons that there isn't a single big discovery in the twentieth century that astronomers made deliberately. If you take the <laughs> the really serious ones. And I think yeah, that that's probably true. It's slightly unfair to things like cosmologists who are on track of the cosmic microwave background this age of light, mm. but you know, the radio engineers found it first and All right, the radio, people who pioneered radio astronomy knew what they were doing, but the astronomers weren't listening to them. It was considered this bizarre thing that you did as a hobby. Uh, Yeah, we found some near-Earth asteroids, but most of them by accident. And so I think wherever you look, there is this this accidental universe surrounding us. And I, I think once you accept that, it changes your view of the universe, I think. It becomes a much more fun place to be. And I hope that people will, by the end of the book, really get the sense that, being in an uncertain universe where things happen is exciting and and it's to be embraced.
1: It's slightly different, isn't it, with something like like the 1998 dark energy uh, dark energy thing where where it's yeah. like you're trying to look for something and you get a, a completely a result that you really weren't no one's expecting.
0: Yeah, this is a good example because those there were two teams at the time who were setting out to measure the slowing down of the universe. So We know that it's expanding. We've known that since the 30s. But we thought it should be slowing down because gravity is the only force that acts on a universal scale. And gravity, as we know, pulls things together. So therefore, the universe should be slowing down. The more stuff there is, the slower it should be going. Um, And so it's a way of weighing the universe. So there were two teams who set out to measure this. One of them had as their website, you know, the headline was setting out to measure the deceleration of the universe. And both of them found that the universe was speeding up. Um, So one of the interesting things about that is that they believed their results. So yeah, the book celebrates, I would like to celebrate people who are are happy to be surprised. And so it would have been very easy, I think, for both teams to decide that their results were wrong, that there was some error, that they'd done these quite difficult measurements of Distant Supernovae wrong and and to hold on. And I think partly the fact there were two teams helped because it meant that they always worried that the other team were were behind them and it, it must have been a great moment where they realised they both had the same mm. result the other thing is that we probably shouldn't have been surprised by that if you look at the theory papers at the time it's clear that the universe doesn't quite add up if you look at where the energy in the universe is it doesn't quite up, add up to the total that we, we think it has and so there has to be another force, another thing acting and that is this dark energy this accelerating force so yeah I think there are a few people who sort of half predicted what we should find, but n- no one came out and had the courage of their conviction and said, if you make this measurement, you will find the universe is speeding up. Um, and and so, yeah, one well, for the observers?
1: Yeah, it would have been good if Einstein had uh, left it in, the constant in it. Oh, of... well, he gets
0: all this credit, right? <laughs> so Einstein's theories are used to describe this. Well, the first mistake mm. that Einstein made was that he thought he, his theory needed to describe a static universe. Because the astronomers in the 20s told him that the universe was static. We don't see, Mm. if you look at the night sky, you don't see any evidence for things moving around. And, and, you know, he, he, so he invented but he knew that gravity should pull things together. So he invents this anti-gravity force, Um, sometimes called the cosmological constant, we now call it dark energy. Um, and then it sort of goes away when they realise the universe is expanding um, and so it, it's called Einstein's blunder, Though it's not clear that he ever referred to it as that but I think, and then nowadays he gets a lot of credit because this thing comes back as like, oh well Einstein was right, <laughs> well he didn't do this for the right reason, he's got <laughs> enough you know, he basically <laughs> yeah, got enough gravity, yeah. <laughs> discovered atoms and laid the foundation of quantum mechanics, let's not give him more credit than he needs so yeah, I think, you know, he didn't he doesn't get the points from me because he didn't say, oh, well, there will be an accelerating force needed to account for 70% of the universe's energy density. And by the late 90s, we'll discover that. So no, 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 no points for Einstein there. Uh, <laughs> but maybe a sense that it had been in the the idea of this force had been around for a while and people could have taken it from the cosmic toolbox, but they didn't expect to be surprised. Right. They knew that the universe was slowing down. So that's what that's what we'll account account for.
1: Uh, Have have you got any personal kind of experience where an unexpected event or accident has led to a significant finding in your own research? The first
0: of those is the (laughs) realisation that I built a tool for being surprised. So my own research, as you know, has been uh, over the last 15 years, mostly through the Zooniverse. So this platform that invites everybody to come and look at data. And originally we thought of Zooniverse projects like Galaxy Zoo, which asked people to look at the shapes of galaxies as a tool for um, classifying things we knew about. Here's a galaxy, tell us if it's a spiral or not, Great, right? It's a spiral, I'll put that in the spiral box and done. Uh, that was what we were thinking. But of course, if you have people look at your data, then there's this very human tendency to be distracted. And yes, you know, you get this is a spiral, this is an electrical but you also get hey. This one looks like a penguin. Um you know, This one um, appears to be a spectacular merger. This one looks like a small green pea. And the, the Galaxy Zoo volunteers mm. discovered these these green pea galaxies that turned out to be the most efficient factories of stars in the local universe. They're fascinating objects. And astronomers being astronomers, we've now found string bean galaxies to go with them. So we're halfway to a salad. <laughs> I, I think the, the one that really exemplifies that was our Planet Hunters project where we were looking for planets around other stars and you detect these planets by transit so you wait for them to go in front of the star and you see a dip in brightness but there is a one particular star that showed a really unusual pattern of dipping it dipped a couple of times waited a year then faded by 20 percent for a few hours and then came back to normal and then after another year it went crazy for a period of about a month and a half or so um this is what the volunteers called the wtf star um <laughs> You can work out the, the acronym I'm sure it stands for where's the flux because something is hiding this this <laughs> ah, missing nice missing right yeah you have to spell out acronyms in journals so we but if luckily luckily that's what it's uh, do you know what um,
1: I've I've been pointing out to my students it's an initialization rather than an acronym and a- oh, okay. an, an acronym has to spell a word. Did you Oh I see. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: Well in astronomy we you know, as you know, we play fast and loose with all of these the, rules. Or, or, yeah, so.
1: like metals and things like that. There's like yeah, yeah, yeah. I was
0: just using a code today called bagpipes, which I won't even tell you what it stands <laughs> for, but it has very few of those letters in it. Um anyway, um so this star, you know, we were trying to work out what it was. We did all the checks. This is led by what led by Tabby Boagin, so it's sometimes mm. known as Tabby Star or more more properly as Boagin star. And, um, you know, so we, we even got to the point where we were looking at which pixel on the camera took each point of data in case there was one pixel that was, you know, mm. not responding properly, but it wasn't that. Yeah, and we, we came up with all sorts of ideas, none of which were very good. Um, and we eventually published a paper that basically said, WTF, we don't know what this is. Um, and then, uh, Jason Wright and colleagues at, in the US published a paper said, oh, we know what it is. It's an alien megastructure. Mm. And so, the first time I knew about this was the phone in my office ringing, and I think it was the Daily Mail on the line saying, I hear you've got evidence of aliens. And they're sitting here going, It's Monday morning. I think, I've, and you know, checking my email just in case I'd missed something. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that was a fun adventure. So, and, you know, it, what that turned out to be probably was, well, people don't really know, but we did show that it's not a solid object. So, it's not an alien megastructure, it's not some vast space station. Or collection of solar panels, so it's probably a cloud of dust or something like that. But finding that has led people to find a whole host of stars that do this, that show these dramatic dips. It's made us think differently about what we're going to find with new surveys, and it has opened up this this new study of dramatically misbehaving stars. But it started with somebody on the uh, on the Planet Hunter site going, "That's a bit odd," and and lots of these stories have somebody in there just going that's a bit odd and i think that's part of the fun of it
1: yeah no ab- <laughs> no absolutely so um do you think that that in the next sort of year or so that we we're going to have some big shockers in in astronomy because i've noticed that 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 ever since james webb's launch we've got this kind of accelerating story of of just odd things out there where, where where you know like you like we started with the with the a black hole uh, older than the, the the universe and all those kind of crazy stories yeah, but still, no, not to be but <laughs> certainly
0: we see black holes um older than we thought they were going to be and, and bigger you know, as bigger as well of, bigger than they're yeah, supposed bi- to be big big bigger earlier than they should be yeah. so the early universe started with a bang i mean that's true sort of literally but but it these early galaxies seem to have formed stars very rapidly, and they seem to have formed black holes very rapidly, and I think um, we're at the point with JWST where we're sure that the measurements are right. These galaxies really are there, but um, either we don't understand something about the galaxy, so maybe they're forming different kinds of star or something like that, or we don't understand something about the universe, which is the more exciting one, um, or we don't understand something about cosmology and we have to change our theories. So I think in the next year, there'll be consolidation there. We need to look at more of these things. It turns out, if you look closely, they've all got individual stories to tell. Um, the thing, probably a year is a little soon, but I'm very focused, and the book ends with the upcoming Vera Rubin Observatory, which is just the most magnificent device. It's an eight meter telescope. So as big as the biggest telescopes in the world today, except that it's going to scan the whole sky. It's going to do a survey. So every three nights, you get 30 terabytes of images. And Sorry, every night you get 30 terabytes of images. And you also get something like 10 million alerts telling you that something in the sky has changed. So there's something flickering or moving or getting brighter or fainter. And my guess is that every time we've looked at the sky in a new way, and this is a brand new way of doing this sort of thing, we've discovered new kinds of objects. Jocelyn Bell's pulsars, you know, asteroids when in in the inner solar system, quasars when they got the big spectra and black hole activity and so on from from radio telescopes in general. So I think we'll find new things in there. And first light, we're hoping what we call first photon. So literally, the first light to go through the telescope and bounce off all the right bits will be this summer, and then the survey will start in 2025. So give us a few months after that, and I think we'll have a torrent of discoveries. Um, ranging from the distant universe all the way down to the solar system i think
1: yeah because well, i mean there's so many observatories that seem to be coming online and presumably they they all interact with each other t- to kind of create a, a much like it seems that james webb's big power is to be combined with hubble and can be combined with gaia and can be combined with yeah we well, other...
0: always want you always want to mix these things together i think because they all do different jobs but I think Rubin and its LSST survey will be the base for lots of what you do with these other telescopes. So, when we find an unusual object, telescopes in Chile and in space will will jump into action to follow it up. So I think you always need these surveys, but traditionally surveys have been done with small telescopes and then you follow them up with bigger telescopes. This is an 8-meter, so um, we're already going to get amazing images. to the extent that we don't really know how to cope with some of what we're getting, we've spent ten years assuming that we'll fix, you know, we'll write the software, we'll fix the problem before this thing comes online, and it's all getting a bit real now.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. but it
0: should be should be really exciting. I mean, if you look at the, I wish I could show you the simulated images, but if you look at a normal galaxy, in what we think the survey will produce, because you can get very deep images if you go back to the same patches of sky night after night then almost every galaxy will be embedded in this halo of tidal tails and disrupted gas and so on. So the disk, it's like seeing the top of the iceberg, and we're about to see the rest of the iceberg for the same time, for the first time. But we don't really have language to describe the structures that will be there, or to categorise them. So our first task is working out what's a useful thing to say about this new view of the universe. It, It feels... Honestly, rather like the birth of radio astronomy where they had to invent a whole new way of of looking at the cosmos.
1: Yeah, so the survey telescopes, presumably they create so much data that it's going to, how long, I mean, is, is, is it decades to actually kind of work your way through the data? Or Oh,
0: or... I'm sure. I mean, we're still using survey data from 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So so Ruben's a 10-year survey in the first instance, but we think that will keep us going for, for a long while. Um, and, and we'll work out what to do after that with this 8-meter when we get there. But um, no, it's special because it's the whole sky. So it's got a very wide field camera. Um, And so it will be able to do the whole sky. So we're used to either, um, and again, this is one of the stories, but either you do a survey of the whole sky or you do something like the Hubble Deep Field and you drill deep into one patch of sky. JWST is doing a lot of this as well. Rubin's almost the best of both worlds. So we're going to get a deep image across the whole sky and all sorts of unusual things are going to jump out. Some we know about, like the, the sort of, archaeology of the galaxies that will show us how they've merged and interacted. Others are pretty speculative. So, you know, one use case that my friend Saul Marshall has been pushing for years is that um, some theories of particle physics suggest there could be things called cosmic strings. So these are very massive particles that are sort of left over from some exotic phase early in the universe's history. If you see one of those, it will bend light so that you get a disconnect. So it's almost like a rip in space-time. Maybe we'll see that in Rubin, but we're only going to do that if we're prepared to look for very unusual things. So um, we need to be open to all possibilities with this very large data set, which is a hard thing to do, right? If I if I want to go looking for Supernovae, I write some software that finds Supernovae. If I want to go looking for interesting stuff, I have to think a lot harder about how to, how to handle 30 terabytes of data a night so that we can be surprised. D-
1: doesn't your book suggest really... Does it suggest that perhaps when you're looking for things like cosmic strings and and you're doing these really unusual ways of looking at the universe, you're actually probably more likely to see something that you hadn't bargained for at all?
0: That's right. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. But you have to design your search so that you could be open to to finding unusual things. I, I have Yeah, this building, I'm sitting in my office, you know, this building is half astronomers and half particle physicists, and I love my particle physics colleagues. They're very sensible people. They're very interesting. But I'm slightly horrified by the way that their collider in um, Geneva works, the LHC, not because it's going to end the world or produce black (laughs) holes or anything like that, I hasten to add. They're not a threat. But there's so much data produced by that machine that it's filtered as it's produced. So they have to write code that tells the machine what they're looking for, and it only saves events that correspond to things that they're looking for. So, more, much more than ninety-nine percent of data produced by the LHC never even gets written to disk. And so, if it's doing, if by colliding particles together, you're doing something completely unexpected, we're producing, I don't know, let's call it the lintot particle, just mm. for, for argument, you know, <laughs> which I don't know turns in spirals and sticks two fingers up to you or whatever. It, it won't show up. In the data, they can't be surprised completely by their data. um As, and, Has anyone ever
1: know, ever thought about writing like a random code so they just run it for a bit and it's they like...
0: do save they do save a little bit. So we actually run a project on the Zooniverse called Higgs Hunters where we were looking through that random trench and we said to people look the odds of this project finding anything are nearly zero if you find anything you'll be the most famous physicist <laughs> in the world and win a Nobel Prize um so but in astronomy I think we can do better than that with the combination of machines and lots of hard drives and volunteers online I think we can prepare to be surprised and and I think think we need to do that so the book ends with a, a sort of Hopefully it's interesting to everyone, but it's a call to arms for my colleagues to to remember that we're astronomers, that, that we make progress by looking at the sky and by being surprised by it.
1: I mean, it is the golden age, isn't it? It is the golden age of 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 what you're doing, the astrophysics. It, it, it I, I can't – it changes. It seems to be changing so much, like even year by year, yeah. that the story uh, – in terms of your own personal experience, you, you've been in the game a long time now – Presumably, it's a really exciting. It's a really exciting field to be in. It, it is, and that's a very, very that's the most polite way I've ever been called old. So that, <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> um, Not uh, as old as me, but, uh, so <laughs> you're okay. But, uh,
0: yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I grew up as an amateur astronomer, and I think, like many people my age, I felt a sense that I'd missed out because I didn't see Apollo. I didn't have that memory of getting up and and watching Neil Armstrong's one small step onto the moon. But I think I've come to realise that was the golden age of space flight, right? Mm. Of of people flying around. We do exactly, as you say, live in the golden age of astrophysics with the, the telescopes that we have, with the discoveries that we've made. You know, we're at the point where discovering a planet around another star is commonplace. Like mm. they said, it's hard to write a paper. If you just find one planet, who cares? Just stick it in the catalogue and we'll move on. <laughs> um, if it's an unusual planet, then we'll listen. But, you know, that's that's happened in less than 30 years from the discovery of the first planet. We can detect colliding black holes routinely with gravitational wave experiments. We can um, see deep in the infrared with J- JWST. Some of the the images from JWST are, are just astounding. And, and Rubin will be very exciting too. So I, I think it's the, the technology is good and I think we're getting better at sharing it. So the way that I also think, you know, I, as a kid growing up, being interested in astronomy, I had an extremely large pile of past issues of Sky and Telescope magazine to read through and a few books. But if you want to be a fan of astronomy now, you can be the first, if you're online at the right time, you can see the images coming back from the Mars rovers before the team that built them have seen them, <laughs> um, yeah. just by hitting refresh at the right time. You can, yeah you basically know, mostly they're calibration images, but occasionally you get a beautiful view. You can... Um, Follow along with Rubin. Those alerts are going to be public to everyone. So if you want to, you could subscribe to some tiny patch of sky and keep an eye on it for us. Um, You can see web images are beginning to be public. So they're they're made public as they come off the telescope and a little bit later. So I think there's great opportunity for people to be part of this adventure. Even if they've only got a few minutes a day, you can contribute via Zooniverse, but you can also just be a fan of the cosmos in the way that lots of us are fans of of sports teams and I think that's new and that's really that's part of why it's so exciting right
1: now. Yeah, it's definitely I mean just for that proliferation of YouTube channels that just talk about space and even this podcast as well where where there's there's a genuine Public interest because it is yeah. that be, no, plus, because it's know, exciting isn't authors
0: it? who write spectacular books. Yeah, that are about no, yeah exactly. Be surprised that that's an important aspect of this as well, of course. Yeah,
1: no, 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 absolutely Well, you you know, there's lots of books, well, and TV at, programs, and TV and pro- lectures,
0: and well, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's, it's gone s- very Monty Python. Yes, <laughs> hasn't it? It's like, what's astronomy ever done what? for us?
1: <laughs> but yeah, so you're still doing Sky at Night? Yes,
0: we just I just had our first call about this upcoming year, so we're back in
1: april yeah and um
0: yeah we'll be doing all sorts of things have you, have um, you noticed hopefully... a change
1: there have you noticed a change with the the shift of what you used to do on sky at night and, and where and where it goes now i think i yeah, mean, te- the technology is
0: better so we can be more playful and creative you know when i started i've been doing sky at night an awful long time now i've been part of the permanent team for more than twenty years at this point. Um and my first appearance was twenty four years ago this year. Um when I started it was in a studio with a script and three cameras and you could maybe drop six images in if you could afford it. But you know, what we can do now with people shooting on their own phones or, you know, I have a GoPro that I'm using and we, we do have a camera crew, but we can we can do Skype interviews and Zoom interviews and so I think we're able to tell richer stories but the stories are the same and it it comes back to what we had at the top I think which runs through everything I try and do if I'm talking about astronomy which is that um, Patrick Moore when he was on Skirt Night, knew that he wanted always to talk about the latest results that talk about what's new but he also knew that anyone running across that content might that program might be watching for the first time and so in the same show, you'd get Mars is the fourth planet from the sun. It's red, mostly a <laughs> desert world with ice caps. And then you'd get and the Phoenix landers discover chlorate, which makes the soil alkaline, which explains, you know, but you get both halves of that. And I think there's great value in anyone who can communicate. And sound like I'm picking myself up, but I think the attempt, the important attempt is to communicate both of those things, to be as clear as possible and to be as straightforward as possible, because we've got Great stories to tell, but also to give you the the stuff that's just happened. Um, yeah, you know, my book was contains things that even in the last month or two, I've had to I've had to squeeze in an extra paragraph because the stories and particularly things like um, the story of phosphine on Venus, mm. uh, which might or might not be due to tiny penguins or or maybe even bacteria flying around in the upper atmosphere, um, and studies of jupiter's moons are are ongoing so yeah we've tried to squeeze in the up-to-date stuff because that's the excitement that is is that this is changing
1: yeah yeah it's super change is is there a kind of cutoff where your publisher says oh for goodness sake stop phoning us up to change things
0: yeah i have told them we need to do version two but apparently some people have to buy version (laughs) one first they'll let me do that so you know the american edition is out in june so they might get an extra paragraph oh wow i've done but I've also done the audio book, which was was great fun. So so people that that's sort of the end point is people is, is me reading the audio book, which was just before Christmas. But it it really was down to the wire when we were squeezing things
1: in. That, that's definitely what the the way that I uh, consume my um my books Good. at the moment because I've got long drives and it's like yes, brilliant. Was, Great. well that that'll so, that'll be available pretty much as soon as as the main book when does so, when does it, so when does it come begin. out Mar- March so the
0: UK and most of the world it's March the 21st uh this year if you're listening in the states it's early June and over there it's called accidental astronomy everywhere else it's
1: our accidental universe yeah. hmm
0: interesting <laughs> yeah. well, and, harry, they do it for the harry potter books you have different titles oh okay in the yeah, yeah
1: and films that all have different titles yeah course, we we,
0: we changed they changed very little else so i think i, I think my cricket reference survived unscathed <laughs> um we had a very long debate over over whether murphy's law and sod's law are the same um or whether they're different so <laughs> this is the detail that's gone into into
1: into this publishing press. did you did you talk about real tennis in your uh, uh n-
0: uh, let's see then. I don't think there's much real taste in there. I did insist. So on Titan, Saturn's moon, which is this marvellous, you're going to hear a lot more about Titan in the next few years because we've got the marvellous dragonfly mm. mission to go and fly a copter around. But on in the methane nitrogen atmosphere of Titan, uh, raindrops, which will be mostly methane, are um, the size of lawn tennis balls and i've insisted that we distinguish a lawn tennis ball from a real tennis ball because yeah. those those anyone listening who knows me knows that real tennis is my other obsession the old <laughs> the old version of the game and the the balls are subtly different so so i've i've gone for precision uh, much to the frustration of all of my editors
1: yeah it, i it, real real tennis i i do love the i do love the fact that that it that it claims the real bit as part of its title it'd be a well, bit like calling it, it real just, football we,
0: I mean we just call it tennis but to
1: distinguish that you know for, for
0: other people uh, it, was, it, it was tennis it was it's been it's the game is essentially as it was when henry viii played it um so so almost nothing has changed so so we're, we're the original version the, the the thing that other people know as tennis was was invented uh to have a simple form of the sport that could be played at garden parties basically it's supposed to be a, a muck around with your mates so yeah, if people want to know more about real tennis, we should do a special episode, I think, just on, <laughs> just on that. Otherwise, i uh, Have limit tr- myself.
1: <laughs> have you tried to work out as many analog- uh, space analogies that can bring in real tennis? I
0: have. I've been trying to get real tennis onto the sky at night for many years. I thought I'd succeeded. Uh, this last April, we did a program about Jupiter's icy moons because we got very excited about the JUICE mission, mm-hmm. which is, is headed, the European JUICE mission, which is heading off there now we've got europa clipper launches later this year as well and the moons are made of water ice but they have a liquid center um and that's because they're squeezed by jupiter's gravity and so it's the same physics as if you hit a ball against a wall it will heat up and so i thought brilliant a sport involving hitting a ball against a wall this will be great um unfortunately the, the effects more obvious with a squash ball so we end up on a squash ball and i was going to interview michelle doherty who's another hero of mine um from imperial college who features in the book it was her team who discovered the water fountains of enceladus Mm. um but michelle and i were going to meet on the squash court and discuss the moons of jupiter and we thought we'd yeah i hit a few balls so i was there in in squash kit um well tennis kit actually And Michelle walks in, dressed for a day in the office. I said, I thought we were going to play some squash. She said, no, I have too much dignity for that. (laughs) And so Uh, uh, the interview went out with me inexplicably dressed for squash. And uh, it's only about halfway uh. through that you um, (laughs) realise. Actually, the other story for that is that the producers were very concerned about me. I kept getting questions as to whether I'd be all right on the squash court. I couldn't really work out what was going on. But I found the risk assessment, which said that the presenter plays racket sports weekly. And they'd misspelt weekly. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> so anyway, it's nice to know the BBC were looking after me. But, but I never. It's a good analogy, I think. I, I thought that was that was very nice. You know, the, it, the squeezing, mm. like the squashing of the squash ball, um, creates these wonderful habitats that that maybe, you know, maybe the nearest life to us is sitting within one of these icy moons.
1: Yeah. So that that, that there's a question which. What's going to be the most exciting branch of space in the next couple of years? Is, is it going to be your solar system stuff, or is it, or is it still going to be your sort of bigger, your bigger universe
0: stuff? I, I it's, it's interesting. It's very. I think, I think we're due a cosmological revival. So the solar system is fascinating, of course, but. Um... It takes time to get probes to places, and so I think in the next few years we're going to have to be a bit patient. Dragonfly to Titan—it's going to be amazing. Yeah, I'll be really excited. to be even that's a, a few years away. Juice is on its way, but uh, we've got another six years or so to, and uh, maybe five, five and a bit years to uh, wait. It's
1: an arduous journey. The Juice one—it's it, yeah. it's got to do like two flybys of Earth as well.
0: <laughs> yes, I don't know if you've seen. ESA <laughs> has a juice bar on their website and on Twitter, which is now five percent full so oh it's, it's very much hopefully it'll be like apple minutes and it'll speed up at the end um so so yeah so so that will be fun and exoplanets are endlessly fascinating but i think we're in a phase with JWST where we're discovering how little we know actually and that there's a lot of complex i just said to my colleague jane burkby yesterday that the more i hear about what they're doing with trying to learn about exoplanet atmospheres the harder a job i realize they've got you know we're still arguing about the atmosphere of Venus and the mm. details of Jupiter's atmosphere. Try to do that from a planet that's hundreds of light years away is very hard. So I think these galaxy results from JDS-T, I think that will resolve itself one way or the other. And if you think about it, we've been through a quiet phase with cosmology. One of the great uh, things I've done in the last couple of years has been to revise the book Bang that I wrote years ago with Patrick Moore and, and Brian May, more than 20 years ago, actually. And it's a history of the universe. It it, it it tells the story of the universe from bang to the far future in that order. It's quite fun. It's an interesting gimmick. Um, and we, we sat down, Brian and I sat down to revise it in 2021, I think. Um, and we realized that for the, cosmolo- the, the first few chapters and the last few chapters, the cosmology, basically, it was a case of changing some numbers. You know, the universe was 13.8 billion years old, not 13.7 as we microwave background was 400,000 years old, not 300,000, that sort of thing. Um, we had a few nice pictures to put in, but basically the story was the same. It had it, been a very quiet 20 years of consolidation, I think. We ripped out the middle three chapters and brought in Hannah Wakeford from Bristol as an expert because everything involving planets and the solar system, we had to completely rewrite. Hmm. And I think, you know, the, these things do go in phases. And I think we're maybe we're entering a phase with the planet story where the details will matter. We've got to sort that out. But cosmology, I hope, is ripe for another disruption, and, and maybe one of these, um, some of these JWST results, or the ongoing controversy about how old the age, how old the universe is. There's a slight discrepancy between various methods. Nothing as dramatic as the crazy stories of stars or black holes much older than the universe, but um, there is this slight discrepancy called the Hubble tension yeah. that will not go away. It gets um, worse. Well, slightly worse, but yeah, but. <laughs> It's certainly. I think we we're close to the point where we know it's no one's made a mistake, right? It's not that there's some silly error in a program mm. somewhere. And actually, if you resolve that, it's fine. There's something about the universe that we don't understand, or something about the things in it that we're using to measure its age that we don't understand. And so, I think hopefully that that will blow cosmology wide open because that would that would be fun.
1: Yeah. So that the Hubble tension. What's your feeling there in terms of? in terms of are our, our people going is this going to take a little bit of luck is this going to take one of your you know serendipitous well, you'd like
0: you'd like somebody to have a spectacular theoretical idea i think the luck answer would be my guess is that there's something we don't understand about supernovae um the i would say the most likely outcome is that we're missing something about how supernovae work and the thing that would resolve that would be a a beautiful nearby supernova mm. so it would be wonderful if maybe sometime before the paperback edition of the book comes out yep. we could have a nice bright nearby supernova like We're beetle
1: Beetlejuice,
0: where that is well that's got a million years or so to last and, and uh. actually when it faded in 2000 i was very i think we talked about this before i was very upset about it fading so i want orion to remain the same but maybe something a little further away but still in the galaxy I did Actually, one of the, the stories at the start of the book was from when I went to Gran Sasso, the great underground particle physics lab in Italy, uh, basically in the mountains east of Rome. It's an amazing place. It's mm. You get there essentially by driving into a James Bond lair. You pull off the motorway, see a password, and a giant door in the wall opens. It's great. Um, but there's an experiment there run by a bunch of very serious German physicists, which is there to detect neutrinos these high energy particles from the next supernova in our galaxy and it's been running for 15 years we haven't had a supernova in our galaxy for it to detect and they're desperate to shut it down and upgrade it but even highly efficient german engineers believed that the moment they shut this down the supernova will go off and so they were genuinely talking (laughs) about whether they could bear to even though they didn't be shut down for six months they felt this would trigger
1: an inevitable ah. supernova so
0: surely maybe, surely someone else has
1: one surely the chinese Well, not, not or this the
0: sensitivity you oh. see that's that's the problem but um so maybe maybe this means the publishing the book will mean that all the stories will instantly be rendered out of date by new discoveries so i might have done a, a, a favor for astrophysics <laughs> in, in publishing this
1: <laughs> well yeah, let, well let's hope so so i mean is there's one kind of part of this story i think we probably haven't touched on it and that and that's the kind of effect that astronomy has on culture and society did do 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 you talk about that much in the book and and kind of how it leads those less so i think you know as an astronomer it's and more
0: inside it than that but but it is fascinating to see how you know imagery from jwst pops up all over the place or you know, my friend Katie Mack who's had the experience of being at a rap concert and discovering that the extremely successful rapper has both read her book and has included her in several of the songs <laughs> uh you know which is there's a life goal there if any of your listeners are a highly successful rap artist then by all means please include include the book so so I think it does bubble out in all, all sorts of ways and we talked a bit about I think the appearance of astronomy in in the news I think one of the one of the things that we serve a purpose for at the minute is that i think a story about the distant universe or about our solar system doesn't ask you to do anything and i think in a world that's quite stressful where politics is time consuming and and stressful and where you know but suitable focuses on things like climate change which comes always with an undercurrent that we should be doing something either collectively or individually i think you know reading a nice story about a lunar eclipse or about the color of neptune or about the discovery of a distant galaxy you can sort of read it and go about your day so so um i i think that that sense of being in a, a universe and, and just enjoying it is something that culturally um goes down down very well um i do also yeah, I have a long-standing show that we're touring. I think this year with my friend Steve Pretty, who's a jazz musician, in which he talks about jazz, tries to explain jazz to me, and I try and explain astronomy to him. And it it's interesting how many connections there are to to all sorts of arts and 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 understandings of the world from what is what is essentially a hard hardcore science involving saying the word billions a lot. <laughs>
1: Well, I mean you you've already mentioned it once, haven't you? Like Bri- Brian May. I mean, you you've you've worked with one of the greatest rock guitarists and most <laughs> celebrated musicians in the, on on the planet. But there's a but there's a lot of them, aren't there? And and I've noticed that most most of the people that I've met at ESA and and um uh, are all sort of obsessed by some form of art and music and and there's there's well, I think a connection
0: it's just, there. Yeah, it's almost I think one of the there was a lovely quote about the book from Lucy um Rogers who said you know, this is a, a something like this wonderful book about the cosmos from the most human astronomer. <laughs> <laughs> so I, which is a beautiful compliment. But also, you know, we are we are also people. Um and, and the book makes it makes it very clear that many of these people have their own obsessions and, and connections. It's not always real tennis. But yeah, I think I think that's right. But if there's any connection there, if there's any reason why there's more light to be a connection to things like music, I think it's because as as i found out finding words for the feeling of being in a universe that's much richer and grander than we could possibly have imagined that has many more surprises in it sometimes you know you need to sing about that or to have in my case somebody else sing about that rather than to write equations and prose so i think there is this this expression of where we are in the cosmos that that needs more than a, a dry scientific paper um, sometimes it, it's it's helpful to collaborate and to reach out to others.
1: Maybe everyone underestimates what it would mean. For example, I, I did hear. I think it was Dr. Becky was sort of saying that she actually had a prediction that this might be the year that that we actually get an unambiguous um, an unambiguous sign that there is a, a, a an exoplanet that has a, a biosignature. Which I think, well, I think, still think sounds very ambitious. But if that's the case, I mean, it really does, you know, that that there are other planets with life on. If that was confirmed, that really subtly does change people's, like everyone's perception, like that every every human being living on Earth must have to change something about the way that they see themselves in the universe.
0: Yeah, so, so the first thing it says, I think a year is way too short for that. Certainly, if you use the word unambiguous, mm. because, um, which I don't think Becky did, but, but um, I, yeah, it's going to take us a long while to understand what we're saying. We've got this biosignature on Venus, phosphine, and no one, including Jane Greaves, who led the discovery, will claim that that's definitely a sign of life. It's a sign that we don't understand the chemistry, mm. but now we need to do lots of work to try and understand that. And doing that at a distance is hard. But yeah, finding life in the universe, even simple life, would be obviously one of the greatest scientific discoveries of all time, I think, up there with relativity and evolution and the idea that we're not alone in the cosmos, particularly because I think the search for life is so hard that succeeding even once would tell you that life was common in the cosmos. Yeah, The odds of us finding the only other life are incredibly low. So mm-hmm. it tells you that the universe is filled with life, and therefore, presumably, Um, Even if we find simple life, it's not too much of a stretch to extrapolate to the hope, at least, that there'd be beings like us out there somewhere, which, as you say, does, I think, change everything. Just as, I think, knowing the planets are common in the galaxy has changed the way I look at the night sky. Because I feel now I'm looking at a map of worlds that we might one day explore. I, I I'm I'm not likely to myself, but you know, we as a species may may go and see some of these places. But I do wonder for uh, there's a I've been getting involved a bit in SETI because if you're looking for unusual things in the universe, it turns out you're doing SETI, mm. you're searching for aliens, whether you mean to or not, <laughs> because they're a category of unusual things that you, you might find. Um and there's the shibboleth in the, the SETI community that um, discovering intelligent life, in particular, would be um, the most profound discovery ever ever made. That it, that it would have you know all sorts of consequences for for everyone. Um, and I'm not sure that's true. I mean, I'm prepared to admit if the, the spacecraft hovers over 10 Downing Street, I think that would probably lead the news bulletins. And <laughs> yes, I think if we if we got a signal sending prime numbers, that would lead the news bulletins. But it's interesting talking to people. I get the impression that most people. Assume that there's life out there anyway, and so it'd be nice, I think, for people to have that confirmed. But I think it, it's interesting. It's in most people's worldview because of science fiction, because of the way that we've talked about the, the search. I i think actually, for many people, the radical idea would be that the, that we're on our own mm. in the universe. I think that that that's the thing that would shift.
1: That, people that, that's onto. a hard one to. That's a harder one to prove, isn't it? The nul, yeah, null. Yeah, you can imagine
0: a world in which we invest heavily in finding unusual things and then don't. Hmm. so you know if we could survey the nearest 200 earth-like planets for whatever definition of earth like you want to use and don't find something i i think that that will almost be the bigger surprise i think for for most people um which is not saying we're going to stop looking for for alien life because it it would be important scientifically but but I, I just people just just from the number of people who ask me whether i've found aliens yet yeah, i'm not i'm not convinced that yeah did... the people have quite taken on board how hard it is
1: that that I think you're absolutely right. I, I've had that impression for a while now. When you t- when I talk to people, or when talk, people talk to me, that it, it's almost like an article of faith, isn't it? It's like, oh, do you believe that there's life out there in the universe? Yeah, well, there, well, well I people do. Say there must be. Yeah, right? there must be. And it's like, well, well, you can't just say that. But I think most people. That that's how they operate, isn't it? They they have sort of articles of faith and worldviews, and and I mean most scientists do too, right? Yeah, yeah. So and and that I I was including scientists with most people, yeah, yeah. 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 Well, we're just checking that we count as
0: people. Uh, but, well, you're the most you're the most human of of, of all of them. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, um, um, yes. All the rest. Uh, we have found alien life, yep. and everyone, every astronomer, but me, is actually from the planet Zog. Uh, I'm happy to reveal that on this podcast and only on yeah. this podcast. Um, or you can buy the book. Uh, but yes, no, I think th- I think that's that's right, and I think. Um, In some ways that's why it's hard to get support sometimes for SETI because we're almost looking for a a truth right that you know we we're gonna find life and great and, and 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 then we can move move on but but yeah it's it's interesting to try and I think in the SETI community this idea of being surprised has really taken hold I think that whereas 10 years ago maybe the focus was on deeper radio surveys and better searches for um, Trade for signals, which we're doing lots of. There are people in this building who are who are working on new ways to search for for signals in radio data targeting SETI searches. Um, I think there's a much broader understanding. Should we look for flashes of laser light in the sky? Should we look for um, ways that aliens are manipulating stars? Maybe can we mm. look for the side effects of a- aliens mining asteroids? Can we look for you know, spacecraft in the solar system. Uh, maybe there's something on the moon. Who knows? But but there is this broader sense that if you're going to look for alien life, we can we can broaden the range of things that we look for.
1: Talking about just what life is, as well. I mean, presumably that it, it we, we only know one type of life, and it's it's quite right. hard to it's quite hard to nail that down. But yeah, that,
0: that's true. Although once you let go of that, then it's very difficult to know what you're looking for. So once you say anything could be life, um, then anything can become a techno signature or a biosignature. And so then you're sort of left wondering at the universe, but maybe not not being able to distinguish. So yeah, you know, I think it's a reasonable hypothesis to look for our kind of intelligence and our kind of life and as I keep saying, prepare prepare to be surprised if something doesn't fit that mold.
1: Whereabouts whereabouts is the best place to to get your book and and well, you can get our accidental universe from, as they say, all
0: good bookshops, including several well known online bookshops, which will be be nice. Um I would the audiobook will be available in all the normal places as well. And if you want a taster of some of the stories that's in the book, this year's series of Gresham lectures are all on YouTube. So if you look for my name plus Gresham you'll you'll find it there.
1: Oh that's what I'm that's what I'm immediately going to do after this. <laughs> so Good yeah, stuff. yeah excellent. Thanks very much for, for coming on and, and again entertaining me. Pleasure. Well, always happy to chat. Thank you very much. All right, take care.